Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Fantastic. My name is Max uh, Critchfield. I'm the high school pastor here at Bridges, and um, it is an honor to be with you this morning as we conclude our Building Family series. And as we dare I say it, say goodbye to summer. I know. Anyone else in denial about summer ending? Uh, summer is my favorite season by far, uh, you know, walking around in shorts and sandals every day and don't need to put on a jacket when I ride my bike at night, uh, you know, spending more free time with students, going on adventures with my family. But it's true, right? Many of you students have gone back to school already. Many of you teachers are out there back in your classrooms and the rest of us are heading back to school this week or moving away to college in the next few weeks. Change is in the air, and that's a good thing. God is faithful in all seasons, and he is with us in the change, in the uncertainty, lighting our path and leading us into the adventure of life with him. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, talking about how God put it in his heart to rally God's people, his family, around the great work of restoring the city of Jerusalem. He, he hears that the the city, that the center of worship and identity for God's people is in shambles. And he's moved to tears and mourning and to action. So he secures the resources and blessings to rebuild. And he rallies God's people, family by family, to participate in the great work of restoration. And in spite of opposition and intimidation, after 52 days, the work is complete. So the question then is this, what happens next? How does God's family respond to the completion of this great work? And what does that mean for us as God's family today? And that's the exact question that we're going to be answering this morning. We're going to be focusing on chapters 8 through 10 of the book of Nehemiah. So let's go ahead and, and turn there now. You can grab a Bible there in front of you, or you can um, pull a, the Bible app out on your phone. Let's look at that now. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Actually, let's go back to one verse before, chapter 7, verse 73. Let's read together. Nehemiah seven seventy-three. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Let's go ahead and, and stop there. So all the people of Israel, they're at home in their towns, we see at the end of chapter 7. And, and then in verse 1, we see that they gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. This square was a large open area in the city. And we read that they gathered as one man. In the NIV, a different translation, it reads that the people came together as one. Or uh, in the New Living Translation, it says, All the people assembled with a unified purpose. 
what's the sense here? There's a sense of, of unity, of a shared bond, right? It, it was a family gathering, a family party, okay? How many of you guys have had a family party before? Yes, many of you. What, what are some things you guys do at your family parties? Or maybe what, what kinds of food do you have? Raise your hand. What kind of food do you have at your family party? Chips, <laughs> tacos, hamburgers, salad. Yeah, right here. You're raising your hand. Hot dogs. Yes. Yeah, right there. Something tacos. They sound good. <laughs> yes. Cake. Anybody got cake? Like from Costco or like you made it yourself? Something like that. Yeah, right there. Board games. Fun. Family board game night. That's great. So I, um, <clears throat> I grew up here in the Fremont area, and my father's side of the family lives mostly in Southern California, but almost all of my mother's side lives here in the Tri-City area, mostly in Fremont and Newark. And when I was growing up, there were about 25 or 30 of us in our extended family, cousins, uncles, which is quite a few people. And that meant that pretty much every month it was somebody's birthday, all right? So pretty much every month we were having a party, all right? All of these took place usually at either my grandfather's house or my great-grandmother's house. They lived at the lake over in Newark. And it was pretty much the same thing because they lived right across the street from each other, okay? And we would play in the yard outside, or we'd go through my grandfather's back gate into the elementary school playground behind his house. There was always, you know, a Giants game or a Niner game on TV, and we had barbecue, right? We had uh, hamburgers, potato salad, and we had hot dogs that were burned to a crisp. Okay, anybody else like their hot dogs, like, super charred? Yeah, I don't know if it's, like, a Filipino thing or a Mexican thing or just our family thing, but they taste better that way. Um... That's my opinion. These were things that we always did when our family gathered, right? So what did God's family do when they gathered together at this water gate in Nehemiah chapter 8? Let's, let's read on, verse 2, Nehemiah 8, verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it. Facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And behind, beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Pediah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And <laughs> I get a piece of candy for pronouncing it. Um, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. What did God's people do when they gathered together? Remember what they've just accomplished. They've rebuilt the, the defenses of Jerusalem in 52 days, working with a, a shovel in one hand and a, and a sword in the other, right? They could have celebrated themselves, patted themselves on the back and said, hey, job well done. But that's not what happens, right? Well, what do they do? 
they gather together to hear the word of God. Ezra, one of the key religious leaders among God's people at this time, he stands on this platform to read from the the book of the law, most likely the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And there's this sense of of expectation in the air here, isn't there? In verse 3, we see that the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And we see that again in verse 5, where it says that Ezra opened the book and all the people stood. There was a hunger in these families, in God's family, to hear from God. Do we have that same hunger, that same longing, reverence? For me, there is often the temptation for my time in God's word to feel routine, to feel like a chore, like something I need to do to feel good about myself or to please my parents or to be a good Christian or to get a piece of candy. What I need to come back to in my own heart is, is the reality that God, the God who spoke the universe into existence but, but became nothing for me, wants to speak to me, wants me to encounter him through his word. You remember what Jesus said when he was tempted? He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a privilege. It's a gift. It's it's meant to be a joy, an opportunity to hear from the God of love, full of grace and truth. Am I reminding myself of that? Am I reminding the people around me of that? in my life, in my family. We see that here, and that that brings us to the first C on our outline. In verse 6, it says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What does God's family do when they gather together when the great work is done? They celebrate They celebrate, they bless the Lord, the great God, and they worship him who is the source and object of their life and their love. That's there on your outline. They celebrate who God is and what he's done, and we should do the same. They celebrate who God is and what he's done, and we should do the same. Let's read on a little further for more detail on what their celebration looked like. Starting in in verse 9, it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So here is the key player in our story, Nehemiah. He, he gets up and he tells the people, hey, don't cry. This is a holy day. Why does Nehemiah tell them this? We see in the second half of verse 9 there, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Can you imagine that? All these people, these families, they're gathered together in this public place and they're crying as the word of God is being read aloud. Why are they crying? Maybe they're crying because it's been a long time since they've heard God's word being read aloud and they're moved to tears. These weren't people who had, you know, the Bible app on their phone, right? 
Or maybe they're weeping because they are convicted as they hear God's words being read. As they hear about the history of God's people and how he's been faithful in spite of their grumblings and betrayals. How they've fallen short of God's design for living as his people. Probably all of the above, right? But in the midst of their tears, Nehemiah steps in. And I love his words, his leadership here. He says, family, don't cry. This is a special day, a day of celebration. Let's read on into verse 10 as Nehemiah continues. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He tells them, go back to your houses and have a party. Fire up the grill, eat some sweet food and drink, and don't forget about others. He says, send some food to those with none. Don't be sad because the joy of the Lord is your strength. God is with us. He has been and will be faithful. So let's rejoice in the working of God. In this past season of your life, has God been good? Have you seen his hand at work sustaining you and guiding you through times of plenty and times of want? Has he prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies? Has he brought healing, brought strength, brought life out of the hardness and brokenness of your circumstances? If he has, praise him, the faithful God. Here at Bridges, especially this summer, we've seen God at work in all sorts of ways, especially in the lives of our children, our teens. And we want to celebrate that. We've put together a little video to remind us of some of the amazing God moments that we've had over the course of this summer. So uh, let's go ahead and watch this together now. Man, isn't that good? Doesn't that bring a smile to your face? From summer camps to Mexico trips, VBS, impromptu baptisms, um, there's so much to praise our great God for. So let's read on a bit further to see a specific way that God's people celebrate. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 13 of Nehemiah 8. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written." So the next day after their initial gathering, they've come back um, to read more from the book of the law. And they come upon this command to dwell in booths, in temporary shelters. So they weren't, uh, you know, Coleman tents, but they were booths, okay? So why did they build these booths? Let's uh, look in the book of Leviticus. This tradition is described in uh, chapter 23, verse 39. You don't have to turn there, but... I'll read it to you. This is uh, where we read about um, the Feast of Booths. It says this. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, 
And on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Now, here's the why. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So this Feast of Booths was celebrated after the harvest, when when the bounty of all these fruit, of all these trees had been brought in. And the dwelling in booths was to remind the people of God's deliverance of his people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. Here's my encouragement for us this week. Set up a tent. Maybe in your backyard, maybe in your living room, maybe you get away with some friends for a day of camping. Maybe you just push two chairs together and get a blanket in your living room. But talk about what the Lord has done. Celebrate him, his faithfulness, his power, how he takes what is dead and brings it to life, how he takes our mourning and turns it into dancing, how he takes what's impossible and makes it possible. That's the God that we celebrate. God's family gathers to celebrate who God is and what he's done, and we should do the same. That brings us to our second C. Let's, let's read on to see what it is. In, in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, starting in verse 1, <clears throat> moving forward a little bit, Nehemiah 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So after the celebrations, after the camping trips, comes confession. That's the next C on your outline, our our next big idea. They confess their sins before God and each other, and we should do the same. They confess their sins before God and each other, and we should do the same. They confess their sin. Remember in chapter 8 when Nehemiah told them that now is not the time for mourning, but for celebration? Well, this is the time for mourning. They gather together again, but this time it's, it's in a posture of humility, with fasting, with shabby clothes and ashes to confess their sins and show their sorrow. And what follows in the rest of chapter 9 is this grand and majestic sweep of the whole of history from creation to the creation of God's people and their exile from the promised land. And one of the key themes that runs through the whole narrative is God's faithfulness and our sinfulness. God is faithful and they are not. And here, in this passage, they're honest about their sin. In spite of the overwhelming goodness of God, his deliverance and provision for his people. As God's family, they confess. They confess that they're not deserving of the limitless grace and goodness that they have been shown. And we should do the same. We don't like confessing, do we? I know I don't. It means admitting I was wrong. It means being humbled. It means being embarrassed. 
I know for me, instead of admitting my sins, acknowledging them and owning them, I want to explain them away. I want to minimize them. I want to ignore them. I want to sweep them under the rug and move on. But this choice cuts us off from intimacy with God and with each other. Confession brings forgiveness and it brings freedom. We've all heard this promise from the book of 1 John 1, 9, right? Where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Humbling ourselves in honesty before God brings freedom and forgiveness. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But the Bible doesn't just tell us to confess our sins to God. He tells us that there are times that we ought to confess our sins to each other. Look at this passage from the book of James, chapter 5, verse 16. It, It says this there. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Confess your sins to one another and pray that you may be healed. That doesn't mean that we have the power to cleanse someone else of their sins. God does that. But I believe that there are times when it is God's gift to us. For a trusted brother or sister, parent or friend to be the arms of Jesus to us, embracing us and telling us that Jesus is bigger than our biggest mistake and we don't need to be afraid. I've had the gift of uh, many amazing mentors throughout the course of my life. And several years ago, I was meeting with one of them one day. And we, we met at Pete's. That's the sign of a good friend. And um, something was on my mind. Uh, Many, many years before, before I knew Jesus, I had done some really bad things. Things that I was just carrying still, years later, guilt and shame about. So we were having coffee, and I said, you know, can I tell you something? I I feel the shame, and I proceeded to confess my my sins and my fears to him. And I, I remember he stopped me and said, Max, I hear you, and God forgives you. You don't need to be afraid. And I don't know if he knew it at the time, but that was a pivotal, freeing moment in my spiritual life. And it was the voice of a brother, a friend, that God used to bring healing to that part of my life. Is there sin that you need to confess today? Have you sinned against someone? Maybe in your family, maybe it's a friend, someone in the family of God. I know it's hard, but it's freeing. It's healing it, and we can't experience forgiveness and the restoration of relationship without confession and forgiveness. I encourage you to think about that today. And that brings us to our final C this morning, commit. Well, look at what God's people do in chapter 10, starting in verses 28 and 29. So we're moving forward into Nehemiah 10. There's this whole list of people that are there at the beginning of the chapter. And then in verse 28, we read this. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. 
and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. God's family celebrated. They confessed. And here they commit. Commit to what? That's the final point there on your outline. They commit themselves to life with God and living God's way. And we should do the same. They commit themselves to life with God and living God's way. And we should do the same. After their time of confession, all the people gather together. And we read in verse 29 that they committed to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and statutes. And in the rest of chapter 10, we see them outline what exactly that looks like. Keeping the Sabbath, bringing their first fruits of their harvest to the temple, taking care of God's house, and and so on. In essence, they're getting together to say, God, we are your people. We want to live life with you, your way. You have been faithful to us, and, and we choose life with you. You see, that is the life that God has made you and me for, the with God life. The life of a Christian is not a list of rules and regulations to earn God's love. The scriptures are God's word to show us what life with him is meant to look like, but what God has been after from the beginning is life with you and me. As you look ahead to the year to come, for you personally, for the people around you, for your family, will we say, God, wherever you lead me, Whatever this new year will bring, I choose life with you. I want to live my life to honor you wherever I find myself and to put you first in my everything. What does that look like in your life personally? Maybe he's calling you to commit to making an impact here at Bridges in a way that you haven't before. I can say this confidently. We need you. Our body is not complete without your giftings, your passions, your heart to honor Jesus by giving your, your life away here in ministry through God's church family. Maybe committing means resolving to honor God with an area of your life where you haven't been honoring him up to this point. Maybe in how you treat your parents or how you treat your children or what you do with your money or how you think about your future. I'm going to invite the band to come forward, and we're going to sing a song together that I think really captures this idea of commitment. It's called Build My Life, and it talks about deciding what foundation we're going to build our lives upon. Will it be God and his love, his truth, his way, or will it be something else? Brothers and sisters, What great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God. Many years ago, um, went on a camping trip with some families um, from my previous church, and some of them were related, some of them were in my youth group, and we were camping up by Lake Shasta for a week. And uh, one day we were sitting around, and um, one of the people was saying, man, isn't it great that... Uh, you know, we get time as friends and family to gather together to be here. And one of my students, she kind of looked around the circle and she said, I don't see any friends here. I don't see any friends. Brothers and sisters, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God. And that is what we are.
Let's celebrate the work of God in our midst. Let's confess our sin to God and each other. And let's commit to life God's way with him as the king of our lives. Join with me as we sing this song. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.